Heavenly Father, it's so good to know that we can gather in thy presence in this morning hour, unhindered, unafraid, knowing that there are believers all over the world gathered in thy name. Nevertheless, Heavenly Father, our hearts and minds and prayers go out to our brethren in Ukraine who are gathering perhaps in much different circumstances, perhaps with fear and trembling, uh, concern for their safety and for the safety of their loved ones. Nevertheless, Heavenly Father, we know that the same God that we serve here is also there, that thou art everywhere, and thou art able also to provide both a blessing, a protection, and safety for our brethren over there. May thy word continue to go forth until thou wilt return. And we ask for a blessing now on all those who could not gather with us, those that are sick, those that are aged, those that have uh, perhaps other issues that they're dealing with, Heavenly Father, be with them and bless them even though they could not attend this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> for this morning's meditation, um, I've chosen to read from the 12th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 12. <clears throat> I'd like to read a portion starting with the first verse. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus, which was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. I've read till the end of the 11th verse. Let's kneel for prayer. Loving Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name most high. Your name is holy, and you are three times holy. And Lord, may we always remember that you are in the high heavens, and we are upon this lowly earth. And there are two places where you dwell, in the throne and the heavens of glory above 
and in the hearts of humble men and women that have received your word and your truth and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we come before thee this morning thanking thee for this night's rest to our weak and mortal bodies. And we pray, Lord, that we may be ready and alert to receive your word in meekness mingled with faith. We pray, Lord, that all that are in this house of worship this morning will be attentive to your word and that our hearts will be opened and the ground will be prepared to receive the seed. Even as in this chapter that we've read, the Lord Jesus said that the seed needs to fall into the ground and die. If it doesn't die, it abides alone. But if it, if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. We pray, Lord, that the seed will fall into our hearts and that we would die to self. <clears throat> that we would be willing to be moved by your word and your Holy Spirit. And that it would bring forth much fruit in each and every life here this morning. Lord, we're thankful to see our church filled with young people because they are the future. Whatever future you've given to us, Lord, we pray these young people would be the next generation, the ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ his disciples in this ever-darkening world, in this world of fear and turmoil. Father, we do pray and we do plead with you this morning that anyone that is not prepared to do that, that you'll prick their hearts, that you'll open their eyes, that they may see of what this life is really like of what your purpose for them is in this life and that they would take up the cross deny themselves and follow you Father we're <clears throat> thankful for the ones that are here this morning we pray for those that couldn't be here even on social media or Microsoft Teams. Lord, we pray that you would be with them as well and comfort them and strengthen them. We know that every one of us have difficulties and challenges and illnesses and sufferings which is what has been destined for man since the fall that we have been made subject to vanities not willingly, not because we wanted it not because Lord you wanted it but because of man's sin and it is a reminder that we can do nothing without you and it is a reminder that we groan and we stand on tiptoe waiting for that blessed expectation for the redemption of our bodies 
to be released from this earthly tabernacle, to be released from the difficulties and trials. But while we are here, we need to live for Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is only gain. Be with those that are sick, the shut-in, the weak, the feeble, the lonely. Comfort, strengthen them. We especially pray for those in our congregations that are, have been undergoing chronic illness and difficulties. We pray for Sister Olga Ordog and Sister Sandy Sores, for little Jacob Weinhardt, for Christy Ritzman, we pray, Lord, for Sasha Nechikov and Willie Tipkar. We pray, Lord, for Sister Liv Bilek and Sue Bilek. And there are many, Lord, that are suffering and have been suffering such a long time. We pray that your presence would be with them, that you'd embrace them in your arms. They will feel your presence and that you'd give them grace to endure until you would restore them and heal them. Be with us now as we would look into your word. We pray for a dear brother as you expounded, give him wisdom upon his heart and words upon his lips. And also be with us all as we would worship thee this day in spirit and in truth. May your name be lifted up, may your name be glorified. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, I often simply open the scriptures and preach from them. But as I was thinking about this weekend and about our visitors coming and about the service project, uh, the, the blanket tying that you're going to be doing, um, after the afternoon service, I, I started thinking about the elements of the church. What is it that makes a church a church? And as I was thinking about that, some, some thoughts came to mind. Uh, I heard a sermon a, a, a while back, and some of the things that were expressed there uh, really stuck with me. And I'd like to share some of that with you and perhaps add a few thoughts of my own as we, we think about this, because I think this section of scripture that we've read together, you, it's not unfamiliar. I'm sure many of you have heard it many times and probably heard, preached on many times as well. But I think there's something in there when we look at it under a slightly different light. And that's what I'd like to do with the Lord's help here this morning. It says simply, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany not far from Jerusalem, the home of some of his closest friends. And there's going to be a gathering there. And in that gathering, I see all of the essential elements of what it means to be a church. First of all, the location was of secondary or tertiary importance. The fact that it happened in Bethany 
was of no particular note other than that was the home of his friends. The important thing was Jesus was there. Christ himself tells us that where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. That is the first, foremost, and primary definition of the church. The church is where Jesus is, where those that are gathered together with him. Remember, the big religious center was just short journey away. But that was not the church. The second point comes where Lazarus was, which had been dead. Where Jesus comes, he brings life. In the beginning was the word. When the word came, life sprung up. And life comes even from a dead and sinful existence, a lost existence. And Lazarus is the picture of that for us. Where the church is, there must have once been dead people that had been brought to life by Christ. See, you can gather in the name of Jesus, but if no dead people have been brought to life by him, it's simply a religious gathering. It's not the church. There are many today that will gather, at least nominally, in the name of Jesus, will burn incense, will pray to icons. But where is the life? Where is the one who is dead and lives again? That's important. Because if that element is, is not there, everything that follows is of lesser value. I won't say it's of no value, but it's of lesser value. My heart goes out to those that are gathered here, uh, the, the young people. I know what it was like to be involved in, in, in big, exciting youth events, and, but also what it was like to be involved in those things in an unconverted state. I like being in church. I like being with other young people. I like doing church things. I don't like serving. But I know at the very center that the core of me was still dead. There was something missing. And so though I enjoyed it in the moment, there was often some melancholy that followed when I thought about those things and realized that I, I, I couldn't fully participate. There was something missing. Something important missing. Jesus had been there. I knew that. I felt that. I felt it in the song. I felt it in the preaching. I felt it in the people that were gathered together with me. I knew Jesus was there. But the problem was, I was still dead. I was still dead. Dead in trespasses and sins, as the scripture says. So, where Jesus is, there must come life. There must be one who is dead that comes to life again. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. Service, starting from this position, where Jesus is, where dead people have been brought to life again, is true godly service that has a weight in glory, gold, crowns, benefits. But where those first two are not, service can actually become an excuse 
for pride and, and self-aggrandizement, self-promotion. It can actually be a source of bitterness if our heart's not right. Why am I serving and others are not? So again, the proper context. Christ is there. The dead have been raised to life and called to serve. Every Christian service project, you know, it's funny. Uh, I often think about this. Sometimes uh, when, when there's uh, some good work done, and it's done in the name of Christ, it's, it's a church-sponsored uh, event or a Christian initiative. And I, I have to think to myself, how do people stop and wonder, you know what, if the Christians stop doing all of these humanitarian things, how much would actually get done? I don't see the atheists getting together and engaging in, in, in um, service projects, feeding the homeless. They may vote for the government to dole out a little bit more money, but get their hands dirty. No. That's the mark of the followers of Christ. They've been brought to life for service, and they serve with joy because, indeed, they serve Christ. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly. I'm not an expert on history here, but I'm told that this, 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 this ointment that she had was like a liquid. It was, I think it's called liquid nard. And uh, it was a, 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 a distillation. So things are precious because of scarcity. Um, for those that uh, know a little bit about, say, mining, one of the things, one of the ways they judge mining projects is what, what the resource looks like, what the, um, the, the concentration of whatever you're trying to extract is compared to the bulk of material that you have to move. And if you're mining something very precious, like, say, gold, it can be enough to have one or two grams per ton of rock that you have to move. Think about that for a moment. People are willing to move a ton of rock to get one gram or two grams of gold. It's that precious. It requires that much rock to get that little amount of gold. It was the same way in the ancient world with perfumes. Before uh, modern laboratories and, and chemical processes, you had to rely on things in nature. And anyone who's been around a, um, a, maple, a maple syrup festival or, or seen what it's like to sugar off maple sap into maple syrup, you know how many gallons of sap it takes to make a gallon of, of syrup. The ratio is like 5 or 10 to 1. I can't even remember what it was. It's very high. Again, when something is concentrated, that's very, very precious because of the amount of, of, of uh, work it represents. It was the same way with this perfume. The extraction of I don't know how much raw material to get this small amount that was very precious and was to be used very sparingly. Even in the, um, the, the, the tabernacle, not everything was solid gold. Most things were only overlaid with gold. A thin, thin layer. Gold can be beaten very thin. A thin layer burnished over wood, perhaps to give the appearance of solid gold because 
Solid gold is extremely costly and, of course, very heavy. So this represented an enormous amount of work to get this special ointment, and you were to use it very sparingly. Do you see what Mary did here? Emptied the whole thing on Jesus. The whole thing. He was worth it. So here again we see another symbol of the church. A wholeheartedness, a complete giving over to Christ, recognizing what he has done. Some churches, if you can call them that, got very clever. They took the Old Testament concept of the tithe, 10%, and they came up with a doctrine that said, unless you give 10% or more, it's like you gave nothing. God, God disregards it. And from what I heard, from that point on, that church had no problems with money. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with a teaching like that? Does this sound like the Pharisees, or does it sound like Mary? And of course, the more uncomfortable question for us is, does that sound more like us? I've given my 10%. I've put in my dues. i put in my time. The rest is up to the others. Mary was not sparing with that costly ointment. I don't even know where she had it. We know a little bit about her sinful past. Perhaps it was tied to that, and it represented a full pouring out of everything she had been before to Christ. I don't know. But it was a costly thing. And she did not hold back. Not only did she not hold back, but it says she wiped his feet with her hair. A number of you young ladies have beautiful long hair. But I don't know that you'd be so quick to wipe somebody else's feet with it, would you? Even in today's culture, that would be demeaning. And let me tell you, feet today are a lot cleaner than feet were 2,000 years ago. When you walked with open sandals on dusty road amid the exhaust of the transportation. It's still a demeaning thing. It's still a humbling thing. But what do we notice about Mary? She didn't care. It wasn't about her. It was everything for Christ. And that, that is the definition of worship. Worth-ship. To put everything of worth over on Christ. To acknowledge that he is the one who is worthy. Worthy is the lamb, it says in Revelation. Worthy is the lamb of everything. And you can give now or you can give later. But it's so much better to give it over now. All of it. That kind of humility, that kind of abandonment. Notice that she didn't do it in a way that was to show off. I think 
so much of what is categorized as worship in Christian circles is nothing of the sort. It's done for the benefit of those watching, the benefit of the video cameras. But Mary, it says in another place, came up behind him and did this act behind him. True worship is always, always mixed with humility. And that is a sweet-smelling savor in the nose of the Lord. It says he gives grace to the humble. So, again, to recap, Christ must be there. Dead lives must have been raised to life. Service now happens in the name of the Lord. And where those things are, then there can be true worship. Then there can be a complete pouring out, regardless of the cost, to glorify the Christ who died for us. It says, remember, this is done for my burying. When we put it in that context, what price is too high? Which one of us is going to say that money should have been used for something else? Let's take a moment now and look at Judas. Judas is, I think, the most tragic figure in all of Scripture. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Who was Simon? We don't really know. He's mentioned here in connection with Judas. I'm inclined to think that Simon may have been a good man. I hope that at this time Simon was dead and he didn't see what his son was going to do. But I hope, I think he might have been a good man because he's mentioned here. So what does this tell us? Kind of an uncomfortable fact. It doesn't matter who your parents were. Your parents may have been the most godly people to ever walk the earth. But that may, have be, may be of little benefit to you. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Judas had all, all of the benefits that could ever be asked for, for a godly life. Three years in the very best Bible school, learning from the Lord of glory himself. It fills in a few details here about his life. He says, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag. I wonder. I wonder who gave him that bag. Did Christ put him in charge of that little group's finances? Was it voted on by the disciples? I don't know. But that bag represented something, I think, that's very important for us. That bag represented an opportunity. And it's the same opportunity that each one of you are given. That bag could have been used for good or for evil. The choice was up to Judas. The choice was up to Judas. 
He couldn't say, why didn't you guys give me this bag of money anyway? Did you know I'm, I'm predisposed to steal? I'm a kleptomaniac? Or I, I lust after money? I'm a victim. Why would you put me in this position? It's not how God works. God gives us choices, and we own those choices. They shape our character. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a destiny. Those truths of Scripture still apply. They have not been set aside since it was penned in God's word, that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so that very thing that Judas had, that he chose to use for evil, to buy that little plot of farmland that was his for his retirement, was the same thing that he could have used to glorify God. And I wonder if perhaps on some of those nights when the others all fell asleep, and Judas perhaps tossed and turned because of a guilty conscience, I wonder how many times he almost got up and went over to Jesus and shook him gently and said, Master, I have something to say to you. But he didn't. He didn't. And that, ultimately, was the important thing. So even where there is the church of God, even where Christ is present, where people raised from the dead, where acts of service are being under, are, are taken, taken uh, part in, where there is legitimate worship that glorifies God, there can still be that son of perdition. The doors are not closed to those that may be sinful, and it's a good thing, because none of us would enter. But even in the church, there can be one like a Judas. The important thing for us is to ask, as the disciples did, is it I? Is it I? Then Jesus, then said Jesus, let her alone. Think about that one for just a moment. Let her alone. Leave her be. Here's an important principle also, I think, for the church of God. If someone doesn't do something our way, how do we react? Do we find fault? Do we criticize? Be careful. You may not have the full picture. One of my favorite verses says that by the church will be known the manifold wisdom of God. What that tells me is that the wisdom of God is too great for any one person to hang on to. When Adam took, knowingly took that fruit in the garden and took a bite of it, he only got a bite-sized amount of knowledge. Big enough to fit in him. But it was the whole tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. The whole tree. We get a piece of knowledge and we think we've got it all. Be careful. Be careful. Let her alone. Let's see what will happen. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. We could change that a little bit for today's context and, said, and say instead, against the day of my return 
has she kept this? You see, we're often poor judges of what has value. But there will be a day where true value will be exposed. We'll see how every man has built, whether it's been with wood, hay, or stubble, or with gold, silver, or precious stones. The interesting thing about that statement or that, that metaphor is this. Wood, hay, and stubble are all above the ground, but gold, silver, and jewels are all below it, perhaps unseen. And I think, I think that maybe that's what it will be like in the day of the Lord when these things are made clear, when we see for the first time what really happened is those things that were unnoticed while we were here are the things that actually have the most value. So be careful how you build and how you lay up treasure for the day of the Lord's return. Don't look for acclaim and for um, glory here. You may find you have none over there. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. This is the way it is in the church as well. I know of some sitting here whose life was such a miraculous change that others had to come and see what happened. How could it be that this person that I knew before has changed so much and they came for the sake of Lazarus who was raised from the dead? Each one of you who is truly converted has an opportunity to be a Lazarus in a dead world to show others, to bring others to Christ through the testimony of what has happened in your own life. Use it. It's one of the most powerful things uh, that, that this world knows, personal testimony. I'm uh, in the world of packaging design. I design packaging graphics. And the holy grail, or the ultimate thing for a, a, a packaged good or for a brand is when your consumer becomes your advocate. They tell other people about your product and they attach their own personality and their own reputation to your product. That's when you know you've really got something. That's when your brand goes viral in the words of the internet. That's when it really takes off, when it be goes from being a sleeper to an overnight sensation through advocacy. Do you realize the same happened in the early church? This is exactly why social scientists cannot discount the person of Christ. It has no historical precedence. This religion shows up in an obscure part of the, of the Roman Empire, and in 50 years it covers the entire empire. Thousands. And not just thousands, but thousands of people willing to die. for this new religion. They had indeed turned the world upside down. And earthly authorities didn't know what to make of it. We see that here as well. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. They didn't stop and think, wait a minute, this guy was dead already. What are we doing trying to kill him again? It doesn't make any sense. Couldn't Jesus just come along again and raise him from the dead? 
But that's the kind of idiocy of the depraved mind. It sees only the threat to their power base. I hope we're all praying for our brethren in the Ukraine. Because in a time when national fervor runs high, they will be asked to take up arms against the invaders. And it will be an opportunity for them to show that they, like Lazarus, have been raised from the dead. And they need not fear death anymore. But the chief priest didn't understand that. And the power brokers and those in charge in this world won't understand it either. And so, even in the last days, Christian blood will be shed because they don't understand it. But we know more than Mary, Martha, and Lazarus knew at the time of the supper. We know not only that he can raise the dead, but we know that he's coming again. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Would I prefer to have the other brother have the closing, but there was one last thought, so if you'll bear with me, I'd like to share one thing before. I'd like to give a little bit of space to Brother Doug. Weekends like this are a blessing. I remember that clearly as a young person. You know, there was, there was always this it's kind of a lift after the weekend. You're kind of basking in the warm glow of everything you've experienced and how wonderful it's been. And even at this meeting, this gathering at this home in Bethany, we think about Mary and we think about what she did for the Lord. But do you realize that the next day, when she went about her business, when the world went back about their, to their wares and to their merchandise, there would have been a different smell in the marketplace. This woman would have walked by and people would have perked up and said, what is that? What's that smell? And there would have been the realization, that's that same perfume. She's the one who was with Jesus. She's the one who spent time in his presence. And that perfume would linger. May that be the case also for all of us. When we would go out tomorrow, perhaps if the Lord would tarry, to our places of employment, school, wherever the Lord calls us, may that perfume of having spent time in the presence of Jesus also go with us. Brother Doug, have you got anything to add? That will conclude our service. Thank you for coming.